today. Thank you very much. Second Kings chapter number 5, look if you would at verse number 24. Second Kings chapter 5 and verse 24. The Bible says, And when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand and bestowed them in the house. And he let the men go, and they departed. And he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said unto him, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? And he said, Thy servant went no whither. And he said unto him, Went not mine heart with thee? When the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee, is it a time to receive money and to receive garments and olive yards and vineyards and sheep and oxen and men servant, servants and maiden servants? The leprosy therefore of Naaman shall cleave unto thee and unto thy seed forever. And he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. You've seen this story and you've uh, read it with us over the weeks past. And uh, if you haven't been with us and fact is it's a, a fascinating amazing story second kings chapter 5 the one chapter 27 verses is one of the most power-packed passages in the whole of the old testament there are few chapters in the bible that have more to say to so many issues than this chapter in these 27 verses they're uh, amazing the things that it addresses and the things that uh, we could have over the past months we could gotten off in rabbit trails and preached a whole lot of different sermons about different things but just staying close to the text there have been so many things that my heart has thought about and this passage of scripture uh, brings to mind one of them the basics of this story is that Naaman the captain of the host of the Syrians who were not the friendliest people to Israel were in fact had a man there who had leprosy and because of the spoils of war he had a young Jewish girl who lived in his home and helped take care of his family especially assisted his wife and as it were, she knew, I think everyone knew, that Amon was a leper. And one day, there was conversation concerning him and his need. And she said, oh, that my master would go over to Israel because there's a prophet over there. And this prophet could help my master get rid of this leprosy. And of course, that seemed very foolish and sort of a gangsaying kind of statement. But nonetheless, there was enough validity to it and conviction about how she said it and what she said that you know the rest of the story. He did indeed come, king of Syria sent a letter to the king of Israel and said to him, hey, I'm sending my man over there. He is uh, the captain of the host of my army and I want you to heal him. And um, king of Israel went berserk and usually when kings go berserk, back in the Old Testament it was always good to have a prophet of God standing nearby and he perceived the problem and he came running. And that always amazed me in the first place, which we didn't get to spend any time on. The fact is the prophet was not told anything about this, but he shows up and says, King, you're, you're pulling your hair out for no reason. Uh, let him come. There is a God in Israel. And buddy, when he gets here, we'll prove to him there's a God in Israel. So let him come. Don't get all bent out of shape. And by the way, God's people ought never get bent out of shape. God's people ought never get bent out of shape. God's people ought never get bent out of shape. One, you ought not let your, uh, your frustrations of life get to you. That's a given. You ought not let the problems that life bring to you get you bent out of shape. You know, life may bring some problems, but you ought to be able to face it with the reality that God is in charge. And if he's in charge, then he's got a plan. And if he's got a plan, you can trust him because his plans have always worked and worked well in the past. So you ought to be able to trust him again. And he's proven himself faithful. So there ought not be any reason whatever comes your way, whenever it comes your way, that you couldn't handle it and deal with it. Don't let it get to you. Don't let things rob you of the peace that passeth all understanding in a relationship with the Lord. Don't let things get under your skin. Don't let people make you mad. Don't let your kids drive you nuts. Don't let that happen. You make dead sure that you stay on top of things and don't let things get on top of you because if you do, they'll, it'll just drive you nuts. The king of Israel was that kind of guy. He's, oh my goodness, who does he think I am? Does he think I'm God that I, I can solve this problem? And then the prophet shows up and said, let him come. And the rest of the story is that he comes to the prophet and he's uh, humiliated because the prophet doesn't even do him honor of going out to his chariot. He sends his servant Gehazi and said, tell him, go down and dip in the waters of Jordan seven times. He'll be okay. <laughs> Naaman is so angry. He is so ticked. He stomps off in a rage. Gets so angry. Bent out of shape or something. Oh, we all do that, don't we? I mean, we think we're better than that. If somebody doesn't honor us, knowledge, acknowledge us, respect us for who we think we are, oh, do we ever get angry. 
If somebody doesn't compliment you the way you think you ought to be complimented, does it just get under your skin? If somebody doesn't say kind things about you and your family the way they say it about it, do you get bent? Oh, we do, we do. We ought not, but we do. What does it matter what men say? Who are we after to please here? There's a God in heaven who looks over everything that's going on, and it ought to be all of our attention placed on how well does He approve of what we're doing. He is the inspector general. And it ought to be our pleasure to serve and please Him and not worry about what people do, say, or think. Oh, certainly we bear testimony, but if we adhere to what the Scriptures teach, we won't have to worry about that. If it pleases Him, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. And in the story, he finally gets a lowly servant to say to him, Look, if he'd asked you to do a great thing, you'd have done it. But because he asked you to do a humiliating thing, you wouldn't do it. Master, don't you think it'd be worth getting rid of your leprosy to be humiliated? Naaman evidently had a few brain cells left. They had not all died off. And so he turned around and said, You're absolutely right. And so Naaman goes down to the Jordan. He dips seven times. The Bible says he came up and he was healed. And this time he comes back to the man of God, the servant, the, the preacher, the prophet. And he tells him, he said, I, I want to thank you. And more than that, I want to give you gifts. Would you accept these gifts? And the man of God said, no, no, no. I didn't, I didn't heal you. God healed you. And I don't want anything from you. God doesn't sell his healing points and cures. So he healed you. That's enough. Be on your way. Have at it. And the guy said, okay, if you won't accept my gifts, would you didn't do me a favor? He said, I know now that the only God is the God of Israel. Would you give me a, a mule and a load of dirt? So I can go back to Israel and I put this dirt down here and I can worship God on the dirt of Israel. And he said, well, go be, be done. Go on. And that's what the story tells to the point of verse 19. Then when you come to verses 20 and following, Gehazi gets the idea because of his bent. B-E-N-T, his bent. You know, he has a bent. And in this bent, he gets the idea that God's man, the preacher, the prophet, didn't get from this Syrian captain all that he could have gotten. And I believe personally that Gehazi is feeling a little bit taken, but in fact, he's served God so faithfully and gotten so little. And that's been a thing in the ministry. You know, it's a, it's a given. If you get in the ministry for the purpose of getting rich, you not only ought to have your head examined, you ought to have your heart examined. You know, the ministry is not a place to get rich. And no man ought to go to it for that purpose. It's not a career position. It's a calling of God. And he who gets into it ought to get into it with the idea, he may not make any money, but he'll be doing what God wants him to do. And there are much more reward in heaven laid up for the guy who does what he does because God wants it done than the guy who does it because it makes a lot of money. So consequently, it is not a career deal. It is a calling of God. And evidently, Gehazi had missed that point because he's thinking in terms of money. So verses 20 through 23 will take you through the context of that, what he does, what he says, how he lied, and we've talked about that. But our story has laid bare before us the greed and the lying of Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God. And I'm still a bit taken back by the fact that Gehazi had a ringside seat to what God was doing in Israel. I mean, here he is. He's a servant to Elisha, the prophet of God, the man of God. And he had seen some tremendous things take place. And uh, what amazes me about that is that evidently Gehazi is not content to have that position. Let me mention to you again, be careful about growing in discontent with the position God has given you. Be careful about that. God may have put you in a position and you just can't seem to get away from it. You can't get outside your circle and you just wonder why in the world it is that God put me right here and give me this ringside seat to this circumstance and there are so many other things I'd like to be doing. Just be careful. It may be the very place of the greatest blessing in your life you've ever seen or ever will see. So be careful before you make a move. Make sure that it is God willing to move you, not just your flesh getting weary in a position that you've taken. Secondly, I would mention to you that it's possible that Gehazi, and at least it seemingly is so, that it didn't make any difference that he had been with Elisha for the period of time that he had. I mean by that, his association with the man of God didn't turn him into one. And that's a, that, that bothers me. That, that sort of concerns me. You see, all of us have associations. Everybody in this room have associations. And let me tell you something. Associations will either help you spiritually or hurt you spiritually. And it's important that you watch out for the sizing down of your spirituality because of the people you run with. 
You know, you, you can't run with dogs without getting fleas, and you can't run with people who have bad spiritual habits or are lacking in spiritual understanding and let them be continually purporting their ideas that are unscriptural and them not hurt you and your association with them. That's why the scriptures are very clear. Paul wrote it, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Talking about people and circumstances and situations. Don't run with people who have that kind of mentality, who think in a paganistic kind of way. Don't do that. Don't run with the world and don't run with the people in the world. You got to do business with them? Do business with them. Be above board. Be honest. Above reproach. But don't make them your best association. Don't let them be your greatest, closest friends. And don't take their ideologies and their philosophies and you consider them as prospects and ways to make decisions about your family. You know, you always come back to the mother book, as it were, the Word of God that sets forth a clear directive concerning what God wants for you and yours. You don't need to listen to people who are paganistic. And that means anywhere. That means a, a, a guy who's a psychologist who says, hey, hey, you come to me and I'll, t I'll, I'll give you some help to how to live your life successfully. If this guy's a pagan, he doesn't even know light from darkness. So he's not the guy you go to to get spiritual direction about spiritual decisions. Television. Hollywood is, is stock full of paganistic, ungodly, unsaved, hell-bound people. And for them to come on and do all the programming they do and try to teach you and me how to live life and what to do, to take an Oprah Winfrey and a doctor, what's that guy's name, Dr. Phil, and some of the garbage that guy comes up with, oh, it's cute and it's neat and it's cliched, but it's as unscriptural in many cases as the devil himself speaking. And yet God's people will fall at his feet like he's some guru. And they'll get on telephone conversations with local radio stations and brag on Dr. Phil. I've gone to church and I've gone to spiritual meetings and Bible studies and seminars and I've heard nothing like Dr. Phil does. You'll forgive me. But the devil can make something sound good and sweet and wholesome and inviting. But that'll make it right. And see, God's people ought to have enough, excuse me, God's people ought to have enough sense. Spiritual sense. They ought to come to Sunday school, worship service, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and hear continually the teaching and preaching of God's Word. And they ought to do some on their own so that when some guy like Dr. Field gets on, he wouldn't trick you or deceive you and make you to believe something that is not so. And it's interesting. All the people who followed Dr. Laurel. I read a quote, I think I read that on Wednesday night a few weeks ago, article that came out. Dr. Laurel has said she's, she's given up on her Judy's, Judaistic beliefs. She, I think I read that to you on Wednesday night, that article. And, and she's so admiring of her Christian friends, but she doesn't know why. <laughs> Duh. She doesn't know why. She sees in them things she likes, things she sees in them, a, con a connection, a relationship with their Lord. And she's saying, I don't know why, but there's something in these people I like, but I can't put my finger on it. And she's been giving out, spouting out all this information. Give me a break. I'm simply saying to you that sometimes running with people, listening to people is all the wrong stuff. And by the way, not long from now, it won't be, I don't think, long. And it is probably the most amazing thing I've heard of in a long time. I seldom get any Hollywood producer to send me anything. But a few days ago in the mail, I received a DVD of uh, The Passion that I guess a guy by the name of Mel Gibson produced and whatever. And this is sort of a to the pastors. The producer wanted every pastor in this country to receive this DVD. And what this thing is, is to get pastors to promote this film, to get people to go to the movie theater to watch this thing. And some high-browed named men have endorsed it. And they listed Billy Graham and, I mean, down the line, Greg Laurie and uh, I don't know all the men that's on that list, but there's a humongous number of people. I've told you before, and I have not changed my perspective one iota, if Hollywood produces something, something stinks about it. You can't be a pagan and produce something that God would be honored by. I do not believe for a minute any more than a man can be a lost man and come to the New Life Baptist Church and sing here and sing how great they are and be the blessing it ought to be to you. It just doesn't work that way. God just doesn't take a pagan and bless his efforts to bless God's people. God's got too many people to bless without blessing through a pagan. And never for a minute would I believe that God would use a pagan to bless the church of Jesus Christ. But what he will do, the devil will do, is to get God's people suckered 
into going to a, quote, good film that'll help pay for the garbage kind of films by the way they do, as I've told you many, many times. No film covers its own expenses, typically. Every film depends on other revenues from other films. R-rated films do not cover and never have covered their expenses. It always takes a G-rated film to cover an R-rated. Don't ever forget that. Never has there ever been an R-rated film that covered the way that it was supposed to or expected to for the producers. So what do they do? They'll throw a G-rated film right alongside of it somewhere in the context to cover the R-rated cost. So Christian people say, well, I never support an R-rater. Oh, yes, you do if you go to a theater. Oh, yes, you do. R-raters don't cover. G-raters do. And so they'll just slip it in there and bingo, you help cover that R-rater. And I'm saying to you that that'll be what will happen in the context of the film passion. I don't care how good it is. That's not the point. One, God's people already know what happened the last 12 hours of Jesus' death on the cross. If they're lost people and they need to know that, then you ought to be able to tell them. You ought to be able to sit down with your Bible and explain, here's what happened those last 12 hours of our Lord's life. And you say, well, we don't have the access to those people. Oh, you're absolutely right. And there'll be lots of them who go to that film and get some ideas about the death of Jesus Christ. But the fact of the matter is that won't make it a, quote, good thing. And I still maintain it's not a good thing when pagans try to do the work of God. That's not God's plan. Never has been, never will be. And we ought not depend on pagans to do it. And I'm saying to you again, if you get to where you trust Hollywood, my friend, you in a heap, deep hole of trouble. Hollywood hates, hates, hates the Christian faith. And Jesus Christ especially. And I say to you, beware and be warned and be careful. The association that the devil delights in to connect and get people connected to has no purpose but to call and pull God's people in to another pit of deception. Also, as something else, I shouldn't be surprised that Gehazi running with Elisha didn't make a lot of difference, but I remind myself when I read about this and realized that it hadn't about John and Judas. John, a disciple of our Lord, and who lay upon his breast and realized that Judas was the one who carried the bag, I also realized that it was one of those kind of deals where Judas never did change. And yet he was right there with our Lord all the time. John chapter 6 says in verse number 40, it indicates in John's writing, he says that Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? And he spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. That's an interesting thing because Judas never changed. Judas never did get out of that mode. He, he was deviant from the beginning, and he remained that and evidently died in that kind of context. Gehazi being around Elisha did not change him either. A few days ago, I picked up a book in my office, and, and I was reading it, and uh, actually it was a booklet, and uh, I had seen it some time ago, and I was thinking about using something out of it for a message. And as I began reading, I, I got diverted to a page that talked about Mark Twain. And in this section about Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens' real name, he says uh, it tells the story how that Clemens uh, met a young girl, and uh, this young girl had a pretty clear Christian testimony. It said some things about her and her family, about her church going, her belief in the Bible, and her believing in salvation by grace. It was pretty clear and pretty direct that this girl had had a conversion experience. She had trusted Christ. She knew Christ as Savior. What was interesting about it, she saw... Mark Twain or Samuel Clements, and she began to be an interest to him, and he then in turn became interested in her and got so much that he went to her parents and asked if he could marry their daughter. And uh, they finally said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll give consent. And consequently, she married Mark Twain, Samuel Clements. What was bad about it, the whole story unfolded to tell us that she was bad, he was bad for her from the get-go. She did not get him to go to church and attend. Oh, he went a while. The story was clear about his historical accounts of how he went and what he heard, and he knew enough of religious information that he could communicate in church, and people liked him. But what he went on to say was that in his heart, he never did embrace the fact that Jesus Christ died for his sins. He never embraced the idea that Christ was the only way to get to heaven. He never embraced the fundamentals of the faith in regard to salvation, and yet his parents gave permission for their daughter to marry this guy. Why? Why would they do that? Because it was Mark Twain. 
They thought to have Mark Twain in our family, boy, you'd be able to go down and talk to people and say, hey, my daughter married Mark Twain. And the story gave the admonition, admission that the parents were so thrilled about the prospects of having Samuel Clemens in their home, they were thrilled to death with this, that this was the reason permission was granted. In the end, what the story tells is that the girl got to where she wouldn't go to church. She got to where she didn't trust her faith. She got to a point where she quit her own prayer life. She had been a faithful prayer warrior, read the Word, stayed in the Word, stayed in church. He got to where he dropped out of church early on. She kept continuing to go. And then one day, he said to her, called her by her name, and he said, I think you've changed. Aren't you going to church today? And she said, I'm not going again. And he said, I'm sorry I pulled you down. I'm sorry I pulled you down. And the text of the story said she never responded. She never responded. Now let me tell you something. We can think what we will, but our associates and our associations have a good or a bad impact on us, and we ought to judge before we establish them what the most likelihood is that they'll do. Are they good associates? Are they going to be helpful to us? Are they going to be negative to us? I was uh, watching a program the other day, which I'm not given to, to watch. It was a charismatic preacher. His name is Rod Parsley. You may have heard of him. He was a former Baptist, and then he changed to charismatic. As far as I know, every good charismatic preacher that was, is a good preacher was once a Baptist. John Hagee, Rod Parsley, uh, the guy died down in Texas. His son's taken over his work. Uh, can't think of his name. He, who? No, it's the, uh, the guy that has the uh, church that they quote the uh, statement of faith before he starts preaching every time. Young guy, black-headed. Joel, what's his last name? What's the last name? I'm not getting it. Holstein. Holstein, right, Holstein. Holstein, that's it, Joel Holstein. Man, I do hear with one ear, but it's in the back of my head. But anyway... Joel Holstein, his father was a Baptist preacher. And somewhere along the way, he got off track and went to charismatic. My point is this. I was listening to Rod Parsley that day, and I called my wife's attention to this. I've heard him before. He'd get off on something. Man, there'd be so much hand-waving and, and, uh, and uh, you know, handkerchief raising. I mean, it was just got out of hand on many occasions. So I just turned it off, couldn't take it seriously, and passed on. This particular day, I switched across the channel. This guy's up there preaching, and, I mean, he is sweating like he always does and carries a rag big enough to be a towel, you know, and he's wiping sweat, and he's just preaching away, and it's quieter than a church mouse in that place. I said to myself, why is it so quiet in here? And man, he's preaching on sin like you ain't never heard preaching on sin. And they wouldn't have single amen. They wouldn't have hallelujah. <laughs> there wasn't any hands up anywhere. I mean, it was almost like if you raise your hand, you're guilty, but you better keep them down. I mean, they were down. They was, I, I don't think they could have gotten any lower in the pews. And it was the quietest place you've ever seen. And there was no yelling. There was no shouting. There was no hand-waving. There was no nothing. And I mean, he was cutting a trail through the Scriptures. And he was quoting verses. And he was explaining verses. I mean, he was coming down hard on this thing. And it was quieter than a house mouse in that place. I said to myself, isn't that interesting? If you don't plow in my field, I can raise a big ruckus. But you start plowing in my field, and I want to get a little quiet. And I say to you that I think that's the way it often is. Tickle my ears, I'll laugh. may even say amen and yell a little. You hit my heart with the truth of God's Word, and it may just take all that out of me. Are you against amen, Pastor? Absolutely not. Think it's healthy and good if it's from the heart. I don't think there's anything in the world wrong. I think it's a good thing. But I notice sometimes we get sort of moved by the next guy. You know, this guy starting, this guy, and then this person, and then this one, and that one over there. And the next thing you know, we're not doing it because we honestly feel it from our heart. We're doing it because everybody's doing it. This is the way it works. This is the thing. This is the, the crowd mentality. I simply say to you, I just think it's interesting when a preacher gets up and really obviously uses the Scriptures and preaches them, and it gets quiet in a place that's normally given to a lot of hoopla, that ought to tell you something. That ought to tell you something. My concern about it is I think that's the association. James Robertson said it once. When he ran with Baptists, he always came away. He seemed like a little too serious. 
when he ran with the Charismatics, which he became a Charismatic preacher, even though he was a Southern Baptist preacher for years. fact is that he, he said they were more loose and they tended to be more in, in touch with the sermon. Well, that may be true. I don't doubt that. But I'm not so sure all that is a healthy and a good thing. The point is, his point was to make association that with Baptists we tend to be too serious. With Charismatics, he thought they loosened up a bit and it made it a little easier for him and people like him to preach the gospel. Whether that's true or not, uh, I have my own opinion. But back to 2 Kings. Let me get away from my rabbit trail. 2 Kings 5 and back to 24. It says, And when he came to the tower, Hebrew translation really for the word is the word hill or high place. So we may be taking the wrong idea here of, a, of a, an actual tower. We get the idea of a, a beacon and a, a lighthouse or something, but that may not be what really the intent of the writer was because the Hebrew word carries with it something that's raised out of the ground. could very well be a hill. But he, when he came to the tower, he took them from their hand, that's the, the garments and the things, the silver and so forth, and he bestowed them in the house. And he let the men go and they departed. What's interesting here in verse 24, Gehazi is greedy and he is a liar. That we've already established. That text before this proves that. But now he turned in to be a sneak. You see, he bestowed them in his house. He let the men go and he departed. And by the way, it seems that he stopped them before they went any further, uh, maybe where they could be seen from Elisha. So his whole thing is here is to be very secretive about this. So he takes great pains to hide his lie-gotten treasures in his secret place in this house so that Elisha will not notice it. So we have a sneak on our hands. This is the same kind of thing that happened, if you recall, back over in Joshua chapter 7 when Achan, you remember, took the accursed things? That's the thing that came to my mind. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 20, it says, And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and thus and thus have I done. When I saw among the spoils a godly or goodly Babylonish garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold of 50 shekels weight, then I coveted them, I took them, and behold, they are hid in the earth in the midst of my tent and the silver under it. That's an interesting thing. He saw, he coveted, he took, he hid, and for it he was stoned to death. But he was a sneak. Achan stole them, took them, and then he was stoned to death. It's interesting because it seems ever since Genesis chapter 3 and verse 8 where the Bible says, And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. It seems ever since Genesis 3, 8, hiding seems to be man's inborn nature to hide when something goes wrong hide act like it not me i didn't do it wouldn't me i had nothing to do with that these folks heard and then they hid and their lives were never the same look at verse 25 in genesis or excuse me in second kings 5 in verse 25 second kings 5 it says and he went in this is gehazi and he stood before his master first off i want you to note just how nonchalant that is I mean, this guy just got through lying, being greedy, and, and now he has been a sneak. He's hidden all this stuff somewhere in the house, and he rushes, as it were, in before his master, and he just stands there. That's nonchalant. I mean, that's, that's as if to say, hey, listen, I've been doing nothing, no big deal. I've just been out and about, and I've come back, master, and what is your pleasure? You know, what, what do you want me to do? What's my next assignment? It's been rightly said, God is the one factor which the wicked leave out of their calculations. And uh, there's the story in Second uh, Samuel where David and his sin, David was very careful in his plans and in the interest to conceal his wicked sin with Bathsheba. But it should be noted that with all his planning and in all his concealing, in that passage of Scripture it said, And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And yet nobody went in prayer to the Lord and said, Lord, you know what David has done? Nobody had to. The Lord knew it all along. So no matter how much of a, of a sneak we might be, and no matter how much concealing we might do, the fact is the very thing that David had planned and worked so hard in concealing, God knew all along. He knows everything. He knows everything about you and me and everybody else in the world. Everything. Everything. You think about it. Anybody who knows the number of hair on your head would know everything you do all the time because he's got to know when the hair drop out. God knows everything, and there's no exception to this. But also notice in, in 2 Kings 5.25, in the verse it not only says that he went in and stood before his master in a nonchalant way, verse number 25 also says, And Elisha said unto him, Whence, Gehazi, 
two words, really, in your Bible. They add two, so it may clarify, which says, Whence comest thou, Gehazi? But really, the text of Hebrew says, Whence, Gehazi? Whence? Two words. And by the way, it tells me something interesting about this, that um, we might have needed two more words added to understand what Elisha meant. But Gehazi didn't need any two words. He just asked two. Whence, Gehazi? And I can tell you, you can believe me, that Gehazi was very clear on what those two words meant. Gehazi has lied again to cover his greed and his other lie. One lie always is needed to cover another. And every sin is likely to beget a successor. So this question, this two-word question that here, he were an opportunity first off, and you ought to see it as that. This two-word question is an opportunity for Gehazi to fess up. For Gehazi to say, Lord, or to his master, I have I've sinned against you. I have, I've wronged you. I have, uh, I have in the essence... Uh, gone out and, and I sought the Syrian and I asked him for some things and, and I just want to tell you I'm sorry, please forgive me. But somehow he didn't take this opportunity to fess up. He didn't take this as an opportunity to say, hey, Elisha, I, I'm wrong and I know I've been around you long enough. No, I know you know things that nobody else knows. God tells you stuff that that would never dream you'd know about. I, I know that. I've been around you. I, I've seen that happen. He didn't even say that. This guy act like he could pull the wool over this guy who was the prophet of God's eyes. He, he thought he could just get away with this. There'd be nothing said and everything would be all right. I've told you before, there is a certain point when people get in sin, there is an insanity in sin. And you think you can get away with anything. You think you could, you could fly in the air with your sin. And I believe Gehazi had arrived there. I think he thought, I can get away with this. I can pull this off and nobody will ever see it. Let me tell you something. People who do that and get to that point in their life where they are insane by their sin or with their sin, I'm telling you what, no amount of discussing it changes their perspective. Not all that long ago, there was a case with a preacher who uh, had some uh, things within his church that he had done that were not kosher. And uh, people went to him and tried to convince him that what he had done was not kosher, it was not ethical, it was not a good approach to how you do business in the ministry. And it's interesting, he took great offense to that and went further. I mean, he didn't just stop with that. This guy went further. And I am convinced in my heart that uh, it's an insanity in sin. He's, he's crossed the line in his life and in his heart about his sin, and he's no longer at a point where he even considers it being wrong. He believes that it's okay, and further than that, he's taken it a step further. He's done more now than he did originally. And what he did before was unethical. This is doubly unethical. And yet he thinks it's great. He thinks it's fine and he thinks it's wonderful. I contend that it's insanity of sin. There's a point to where even with Christian people, evil becomes looking good and good becomes evil. In the context of this passage of Scripture, Gehazi does not confess it because there is no repentance, there is no confession of wrongdoing. But I want you to see what he says and what he does. There's another brazen lie. In verse number 25, whence Gehazi, and he Gehazi said, thy servant went nowhere. Your servant didn't go anywhere. I've been right out here. I've been probably outside your door, and I absolutely have gone nowhere. Oh, a brazen lie. How could you account for this apart from insanity of sin? How could a servant who's run with a man of God and has done all these sinful things in this text about his greed, his lying, and his lying again, how could he do all this unless you account for it that a guy just steps across a line and now there is no limit to how many times he'll sin to cover his tracks. There's no amount of what he'll do now to make sure that nobody finds out what he really is and who he really is. And so he'll lie, he'll cheat, he'll do whatever's necessary. By the way, I honestly think that's why people kill people. I think there is an insanity in sin even among lost people. I think they get this thing that, that they commit a sin and it's bad, but, but, but it's not as bad as it could be. And so they think, well, I've got to cover this up, so I'll do this. And they do another thing, and that gets bad, and they look at it and say, well, that's horrible. And they just keep raising the bar to after a while, the only solution is kill off this guy and be done with it. And they think they can get away with it. 
They think they can just walk scot-free from it. That's not the way it works. Second Kings 5.26 then, here is a bit about bent, and we may not get into much of it, but let me start. Verse 26, And he said unto him, that is, Elisha speaks to Gehazi. After Gehazi has spoken this brazen lie to him where he said he didn't go anywhere, he says unto him, Whither or went not mine heart with thee when the man turned again from his chariot to meet thee? I want you to stop there in the verse. That's an interesting and unbelievable question. It proves that the prophet had a power that uh, only God could provide and that obviously is not given to any of us today. And that power was that Elisha had been at the very spot where Naaman had turned that chariot or turned himself around in that chariot and had spoken to Gehazi, talked with him. And yet the fact of the matter is, physically speaking, Elisha had never left his room. And he said, yet uh, did not my heart go with you? In essence, I saw when Naaman turned around in the chariot. I saw when he stopped and spoke to you. I heard what he said. I know what the conversation is. Didn't you understand that God could give that power to me? Gehazi, didn't you understand that? Didn't, didn't you see that? And then comes uh, Elisha's, I think, character sketch of who Gehazi is. He asks a question. Is it a time to receive money? He lists eight things here. Is it a time to receive money, to receive garments, and olive yards, and vineyards, and sheep, and oxen, and men servants, and maid servants. He asked him about these. He says, is it a time? Is it a time? Is this the proper time, proper circumstance for us to receive these eight things? And by the way, I see in this a, a question concerning and an issue being brought to the surface about Gehazi's bent. I see in this Gehazi being bent and having, a, as the word bent is defined, a strong inclination or an interest or special capacity or, or a strong inclining towards something that would not necessarily be a good thing. And that, I think, is the case here. I think Elisha knew it all along, but I believe it had held and had been held in relatively good check until something popped the cork. And the thing that popped the cork was his greediness. He just couldn't keep that in. There was this desire for things, this desire to have. I personally think what you have described in verse 26 is Elisha's sort of a shopping list to start a farm, to buy a homestead, to have a place where you'd have uh, vineyards and olive yards. You'd have money and you'd have garments, clothes to wear. You'd have oxen and sheep to make money off of. You'd have men servants and maid servants to serve you. you have everything you need to start up a great plantation, a great farm. And I believe that's what Elisha desired. I believe Elisha had plans, or excuse me, Gehazi had plans to leave Elisha and go set up a farm somewhere. And it was a point that that may well be what Gehazi was getting all this for. Take the garments, take the silver, I'll buy some sheep, I'll buy some oxen, and also with this I'll be able to purchase and pay the, the fare for servants and men servants, and they can come and, and I'll buy some land or maybe add some land. And the idea was that he was going to set up shop and he was going to have a farm. I personally believe that's what he's pointing to. I read through several passages of Scripture and elsewhere in the Bible relating to farms and properties, that of Job and some other places. And everything that's listed here was listed there. That's what they needed to operate, to have a farm, to have some subsidy coming in. And I say to you, I believe that's what this man was after. And I believe that Elisha knew his bent. Everybody in this room has a bent. When I was growing up, I had a bent that was obvious. I still have the bent, but I just have uh, keep an eye on it. I have, an, I have a strong interest in fires. I mean, I'm telling you, I love a fire. I love a fire. And uh, I've told you about trying to satisfy my sister starting a fire in a little hut that we created out in a sage field. And how that sage field caught a fire, it almost burned down my grandfather's barn, our house, the neighbor's barn. I mean, it almost took them all out. And, uh, and uh, to this day, and on this tape, which is recorded, I want the world to know that it was Paulette, my sister, who encouraged this. I was innocent of this sin. I was caught up in the moment. And uh, when I went back to 
my folks sorted out after my parents died. They sorted out some of the odd and end things that were there, and they had them in the garage at my uh, sister's home. And you know what was on top of all the things that were left and they were going to dispose of? That crazy yellow cookie jar where they kept the matches that I got the matches from to set that field afire. You know, no wonder I hate yellow. I mean, good grief. It shows up every time I turn around, and I have a bent toward fire, and I mean that. I, I have, uh, I have uh, thought about it several times. I, have, I love to see a fire. And uh, I have to say to people, no, no, I don't like to see houses burn or buildings burn or whatever. But I have seen some, lots of them in my lifetime. In the south, up in the country, they had no volunteer fire departments when I was growing up. And sadly, I saw barns burn down. I did not set them. I did not set them. But my father would go fight them, and he'd take me along, and I'd get to go see my father work with the other men trying to put out the fire of those farms. And something inside me, it just sort of excited me about seeing buildings burning and, and fires. And then the same happened with the woods. My father often went with a group of men to fight wood fires, forest fires around our community because the woods would get on fire in the fall of the year, and they'd threaten people's homes. And, boy, the whole community would turn out with shovels and, and everything else they could get to go fight those fires away from those people's homes. But I love to see those fires. We could sit at our front door and look up on the mountain and see the mountain burning. And I remember sitting up all night one night waiting for my father to come home and enjoying every moment of watching the fire. Now, I didn't want anybody's house to burn, and I didn't want any barns to burn. I didn't want anything to happen to anybody in any hurtful way. But I must tell you, there was an excitement that would build in me to watch the fire. Something about fire just always excited me. I have a bent toward liking fire. Now, I wish that was all of my vices. But the fact is, there are bins and people that have a, a capacity, an interest, a concern, interest, a strong desire for. And sometimes they're not so innocent as just like a fire. Sometimes they're a bent toward other things. Sometimes we talk about stubbornness in people. Now, I admit, I have my line of that also. But sometimes it crosses the line of just being a, a, a natural, normal characteristic and sometimes turns into be a vicive kind of stubbornness that won't do right no matter what happens and no matter what the punishment, no matter what the kind of element of admonition. We just don't want to do it that way. We want to do it our way because it's just a stubbornness of my will. I won't give in. Now, that becomes a problem. But sometimes young people, children, are born with a bent. And a parent has to identify early, what's the bent of this child? Which way are they going? And do I need to correct it? Do I need to address it? Do I need to stop it? Is it something we would nurture? If it's good, we nurture it. If it's bad, we stop it. We correct it. And consequently, somewhere in the life of Gehazi, somebody missed the boat on teaching this guy about greed and lying. Now, I believe that we ought to teach it in our Sunday school that lying is absolutely wrong. Every kid and every child in our, our Sunday school and all of our ministries, the young people, ought to know that lying is sinful and wicked and will not get you ahead. What our young people need to learn is if you do something that's wrong, you address it, admit it, and deal with it. You know, don't lie about it. Don't tell people something that's not true. Be honest about it. Say, this is how it happened. And, and I did it, and I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have. You told me not to. And if there's punishment in order, accept the punishment. But don't lie about it. So we need to teach our young people from the beginning. So if we have a bent to lying, and you need to ask yourself, do my kids lie to me? Do I lie? Do I have a tendency to be deceitful and deceptive? Do I have a, a sense of, a, of, of challenge to do that? Let me tell you something. I'm telling you that here in this guy's life somewhere, there was this bent that never got addressed. And I believe as he grew older, it just grew worse. And my conviction is this. There is that saying, as the twig is bent, so grows the tree. And if our bent is not good or right, it should be that we start early changing it, correcting it. Because our bent can become a sinful habit if we don't master it. It will indeed master us. Let me ask you to go to one passage of Scripture and we'll close this evening. Look, if you would, to the New Testament, to the book of James. In order to deal with that kind of subject and that kind of issue, you have to be honest with yourself. There is this cycle that we go through. And it's a cycle, and you know it if you know the Lord. You do a sinful act by the fact that it's encouraged, maybe by the bent of your person. You feel guilty. You determine never to do it again. You confess it as sin. You take some encouragement in a brief period of self-control and victory. And then presto, you fail again and you sin. Now, I might tell you that every repeated cycle just cuts the ruts 
of our bent deeper and tightens the chains of our bondage to that sin for which Christ died. So it's important that as Christians, we do not become defeated in this and facing this same temptation and get to a point where we say, there's no use trying. I just accept the fact I'm defeated by this sin and I'll live my life defeated by this sin. I just accept that. They don't have to. And the Bible is quite clear. Romans 6 deals with the ideal of not being under the dominion of sin. Not having a sense that sin can rule over you, but it has been dealt with by Christ's death. But one of the things I think we don't do is we don't honestly face the reality of it. We need to be honest and frank with ourselves and uh, deciding our sinful bent and the deciding who's at fault when we comply with it. Let me show you what I mean. Look at James chapter 1. If you read James chapter 1, it won't take you long as you read it to discern that in the text here there are two kinds of temptation. It's faulty hermeneutics to, to take James chapter 1 and think it's only one kind of temptation. Major mistake. Verse number 2 is the trial of temptation. My brother, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations. That divers temptations are trials, trouble that comes. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect or mature and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, shall be given to him. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Verse 12, blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried, tested, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord had promised to them that love him. Verses 2 through 12 is the temptation of trials and testing. Now notice the distinction, verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Now you know why he said that? Because the point in verses 2 through 12, what God allows into your life as a test is to test your faith. A test of your faith determines where you get the crown of life. That's what verse number 12, Blessed is man that endureth these temptations, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. That's a test, and the test of that is the test of your faith, and it comes by God sending trials. Verse number 13 is saying, by the way, this other kind of temptation, don't you ever dare say God sent it. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But let every man, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. You see the point? In verses 2 through 12, it is God that sends the trial. He's sending it to test you, to make sure your faith is what you think it is, and to make sure that it rises up to the standard it can be. But God does not tempt you or cause you to be given to solicitation to evil. God doesn't do that. Where does that come from? Verse 14, let every man understand this, that every man is tempted when he himself is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. God didn't send that. We brought that on ourselves. So our bent in there has to be watched out for because what's going to happen is we get into sin when we are led away and enticed of our own lust. So may I say to you, don't blame God when you get tempted. You blame yourself and say, I shouldn't put myself into this. Now, you'll forgive me, but television is getting harder and harder to have anything good to say about. And the fact about it is there are people, and probably some in this auditorium, who probably ought not own a television. And a very simple reason. Because you can't control it enough to keep it from controlling you. You catch yourself looking, watching, observing, and being tempted. And then you wonder how come you sin. And you wonder how come God let you do this thing. God didn't let you do anything. Don't you blame God every time you fall on your face in sin. 
A man needs to understand, every woman needs to understand, every young person needs to understand that a man sins when he is drawn away of his own lust. Not drawn away because God sent this to test him and see whether he would stand true or not. God has never tempted any man. One reason, God cannot be tempted and he wouldn't tempt you. Who tempts you then? The devil certainly wants to. But the fact is, we make it easy. We have a bend towards certain sins, easy sins, easy targets, and the devil seemingly, even though he's not omniscient, seems to be very clear. We almost carry a sign. I am tempted by what I see on television, yet I watch it. I'm tempted by what I see on videos, yet I watch them. I'm tempted by what I hear on radio, I still listen. I'm tempted by what I look at in magazines, I yet buy them. Give me a break. Give me a break. If we know all that, then pray tell, why do we succumb? Why do we give in? Why do we line up and draw our hands up in the air and say, hey, tempt me, I'm ready, throw it at me. And yet that's exactly what we do as James chapter 2 verse 14 says. Let a man understand this. Every man is drawn away of his own lust. God didn't send it, never would, never could. We do it to ourselves. And that's why it's important for you to be honest. Be honest. Do you have a bent? Does that bent tend to be the failure of most of your sin? The failure of your Christian life? Does it sort of circle the wagons around that thing? Then one, you ought to identify your bent. And two, you ought to clean your house of anything that encourages you to sin in relationship to the bent. Any man in this room has any problem with sexual sins? You ought to be dead sure that you don't put yourself in a position where you find yourself face to face with anything that would encourage such behavior. You ought to have enough brain power, not even talking spiritual, just brain power, to know if this thing bothers you, tempts you, causes you to think things you should, you ought to say, hey, look, even a stupid idiot would know better to get it out of the house. Get it out of the house. If that's your failure, then don't go around blaming God for it. Well, why did God give us this television if He didn't want us to watch it? He gave you a brain that you can control it. And if you can't control it, then get rid of the television. Get rid of the VCR. Get rid of the magazines. Get rid of the internet. If you can't keep your fingers off that keyboard and causes you to go searching for things that you have absolutely no right, no business, and no godly concept of right to look at, then get rid of the computer and the email, the website, the whole ten yards. Dump it. Or it will dump you. Be sure your sin will find you out, my friend. I've told you before and I tell you again. Most people who fall into a pit of sin never intended to. They didn't look at a sign down the street and say, well, there's a, there's a pit of sin over here and I'm going to go down there and I'm going to fall in and I'm going to ruin my life. That's not how it happens. It happens in the most innocent of ways. There have been people sitting in the office back when we were in the office here and would sit there and tell me stories that would absolutely curl your hair concerning their hatred for a certain sin and their absolute disdainment for it only to be bitten by it because they kept getting someone to introduce or entice them to it. When we were in Ohio, I close with this, when we were in Ohio, our family, Judy and I and the family, we had a couple that we knew of. They were gracious people. And in fact, the guy was a, a super salesman. I mean super salesman. This guy could sell ice to Eskimos. He was just unbelievable. What he uh, talked you into first creating a need and then convincing you that his product was the best and you came away believing it. And, and he was honest. He was not deceptive. He was very well uh, versed in what he was selling and he did a great job at it. He had a great personality. I never will forget one time he called me and asked me if he could come to see me. And I... Uh, I recall that when he came, he walked through the door, we sat down, and I remember he started to cry. And I asked him what was wrong. I said, uh, what's wrong? Is, is there marital conflict here? Is there a problem? No, not, not really. But then he began to open up, and as he began to open up, he told me the most sordid story that I'd ever heard in the ministry. He told me about being invited to his boss's home for a Christmas party. 
And he told me about the fact that the boss came to him and asked each of his salesmen, as their wives were present, he took them aside and said, I'm going to show a uh, pornographic video, and I don't want it to catch you by surprise. I, I wonder, would it be all right? Would you be offended? Four of the men in the group say, wouldn't offend me. I've seen them. I've watched them. My wife and I watched them. No big deal. This salesman halted for just a moment. And the other guys then began to talk of it. Oh, yeah, that'll be great. We'll all love it. It'll be great. No problem. Go ahead and show it to me. By this point, this salesman felt outnumbered, very weak in his faith. And he uttered the words, though in a mumble, it'll be okay. Knowing what was going to happen, he went back to his wife very quickly in the party and got with her and turned to her and said, uh... They're going to show something in a moment, and I don't want you to be offended by this. And they asked me about it, and I told them I went along with it because I didn't want to be a stick in the mud. So go along with this. Don't raise a fuss, please. She said, okay. She didn't know what it was. She had no idea what was going to come up on the screen. In the next few moments, they turned that projector on. What showed up on the screen for the next 27 minutes changed his life and changed it forever. Tonight, he and her are in two different states, and the children have no relationship with either one of them. They had three. He got connected to pornography that night and in a web so tightly wound that he never got away from it. For the rest of the time that I knew him and the rest of the time I had contact with him, this thing had a grip on him to such degree that he was now buying them videos, privately showing them and seeing them with a group of men, just like you would go to a bowling league. And when confronted about it and talked about it, his statement always was the same. Oh, I thought this was the most horrible and wicked thing I'd ever heard in my life and thought I'd never get into this. And yet by one presentation... He's fighting it to this very evening. And my guess is, unless he is a dead man, of which I do not know he has gone to be with the Lord, I guarantee you, he'd tell you he'd trade anything in the world if he had never seen that first video. Just one video, that's all he saw. 27 minutes to be exact. And it has ruined his life. He lost his job eventually. He didn't necessarily lose it directly because of this, but in context it probably affected it and it may well have been of the Lord to take him out of that to get him away from the group and the environment but I'm telling you that this evening to tell you this you have a bent every one of us in this room have a bent and if you don't identify that bent early in if what it is that is the weak point of your character of your Christian walk of your relationship with the Lord if you don't identify that thing that thing will come back to bite you and you may unknowingly, if you do not honestly face it and identify it, you may unknowingly feed it. And what was a small, insignificant thing in your life may one day rise up and bite you and ruin you and your family, your home, and your life. Identify you've been. And then bring it before the Lord and ask His help. And then if need be, you come and I'll help you. And no matter what it is, it would not surprise me. It would not be something, well, if people knew they'd never speak to me again. Oh, yes, they would. Oh, yes, they would. You see, the thing about it is, we should know by now, none of us are perfect. Nobody in this room has anything on a corner on being perfect or good or so great that, you know, we have no spots. No, 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 we have them. We may keep them hidden and we may keep them under control, but we have them. And it's important that we give everybody who's faced with this kind of problem the help they need to get out of it. And as a brother and sister in Christ, we ought to be the first in line to say, I'm willing to help you. Do whatever I can. Whatever way. If it needs to be held accountable, I'll hold you accountable. I'll do whatever I can. I'll pray for you, stand with you, do whatever I have to. We'll get through this. My point is, though, we have it. And we better face it. Or one day it will master us. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and thank you for the things that we read therein that warn us concerning the prospect, the possibility of sin and its devastating impact on our lives. 
this evening as we talk about our bent. I pray that you'll help us all to be honest. Help us not to pretend that we don't have a problem, we don't have a bent, we don't have any kind of, of capacity towards some un, undesirable, ungodly, un, dishonorable kind of thing. Father, help us to be honest. Help us to be on guard. Help us to take heed lest we fall. Help us, I pray tonight, to be honest with you first and foremost. And then help us, Father, to seek and search out that help from people who might be able to stand with us in those moments when we feel we're standing alone. Father, I pray tonight, work in every heart, every life of every person in this room, including mine, and draw us near to thyself. And help us, I pray, to be honest that we are never tempted of you. We are tempted ourselves. We cause ourselves to be tempted when we are drawn away of our own lust and enticed. I pray remind us of that. You are not the one who puts us in situations that we can fall on our faces. It's we who put ourselves there. And Father, I pray tonight.